1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Climate debates tend to be dominated by talk of big countries and big carbon emitters. But the world's thousands of tiny islands, which climate change might swallow whole, have banded together to form a potent negotiating force. And India produces some of the world's finest scientists and engineers. Earlier this month, its space agency very nearly pulled off an incredible low-budget moon landing. So why does so much of Indian science funding involve mysticism and cow dung? But first... Much of Donald Trump's tenure as president has been marked by slow-motion, drip-feed scandals, allegation, denial, investigation, and then a slow fade from the news. But the controversy surrounding his phone call with Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, is unfolding like a pacey thriller. Today, the acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, will be grilled about a whistleblower's report of the call. For months, talk of impeachment hasn't risen above a murmur. This week, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had a change of heart.
0: I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law.
1: Mr. Trump has admitted that he spoke to his Ukrainian counterpart about investigating Joe Biden, his probable rival in next year's election. The question now is whether the president used hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid as leverage to get his bidding done. A majority of the House seems to think so. In the Senate, so does top Democrat Chuck Schumer. Do any of my Republican colleagues think this phone call reflects a president pursuing the national interest, or was he pursuing his own political ambitions? Every Republican, every one of them, to answer this question. More detail lies within the whistleblower's report of the call, which may yet be made public. So far, only congressional intelligence committees have seen it. But there's plenty to chew on, even in the account that the White House released yesterday. This
2: isn't a verbatim transcript. It's an account of the call that was made by an intelligence officer whose job it is to listen into communications between the president and foreign leaders.
1: John Priddo is our United States editor.
2: But it shows fairly clearly the President Donald Trump badgering the newly elected President of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, for his help in getting hold of damaging material on the Biden family, Hunter Biden, who had business interests in Ukraine, and his father, Joe Biden, who at the moment is the front runner in the Democratic primary. President Trump also urges Mr. Zelensky to have a word with his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and also with the Attorney General, Bill Barr, towards that end, which is unusual to say the least.
1: And the controversy around this has a lot to do with the potential for there being some some leverage by Mr. Trump.
2: Yes, that's right. The main form of leverage, it appears, is military aid. So just to back up a little bit, Ukraine, vulnerable country, invaded by Russia, trying to put itself back together, ally of America. America has an interest in Ukraine being sort of stable and able to fend off further Russian aggression. Congress appropriated money in the form of military aid for Ukraine, the White House then put a hold on it sort of unexpectedly with no explanation to the Ukrainian government. And at more or less the same time, President Trump is speaking to the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, and urging him to investigate the Bidens. And so many people put two and two together. But in the account of the call, there's no explicit mention of the quid pro quo. There's no moment where Donald Trump says, you know, if you do this for me, then I'll make sure you get the aid.
1: Okay, let's just consider the facts that are out there at the moment and and agreed upon. What is the best possible light that all of this could be cast in people who are defending the president? What fits the evidence that exonerates the president the most?
2: The best case defense he has is to say, I was merely pressuring a foreign government to look into corruption allegations. That's the sort of thing that America does all the time. Nothing unusual about that. I didn't offer him aid in exchange for dirt on a political rival. And the worst possible light that lines up with the evidence we have? The worst possible light is that the president used public funds appropriated by Congress to extort material from a foreign government that would help him in
1: his campaign. So with the release of the transcript then and a heightening volume of of this discussion, what have Mr. Trump and Mr. Zelensky said?
2: Well, yesterday, Presidents Trump and Zelensky actually had a press conference together at the UN.
0: No, you heard that we had, uh, I think, good uh, phone call. It was normal. We spoke about many things. And I, so, so I think, and you read it, that nobody push it, pushed me. Yes.
3: In other words, no pressure.
2: Both said that... President Trump didn't place any pressure on President Zelensky, but that's not
1: the case if you read the account of the call. A lot more light could be shed on this by the, the whistleblowers report, which still hasn't been seen by the public, but, but has been seen by a, a few lawmakers. When will more emerge? What happens next?
2: Well, there's a possibility that the whistleblowers report is declassified and we all get to see it. Short of that, D.N.I. Maguire is due to testify later today, He'll be pressed on what's in the whistleblower's report by members of Congress. I imagine he will stonewall on that, but he may give some details. And then members of Congress will also be asking him about the circumstances surrounding his appointment. There's something strange in the timing there as well, Jason, in that the previous Director of National Intelligence, Dan Coats, left his post shortly after this call between Trump and
1: Zelensky. And even on the basis of what is known already, this has already sparked um, an impeachment inquiry. How do you think that's going to play out?
2: Well, Democrats are saying they don't want it to drag on forever. They'd like the inquiry to be done by Christmas. At that point, when it's finished, they may or may not draw up articles from impeachment. There's a dispute within the party whether such articles in theory ought to be narrowly focused on the Ukraine story or broader, taking in some older allegations around obstruction of justice and abuse of power and so forth. Then if the House decides to go ahead and impeach, the trial then moves to the Senate where you'd need a two-thirds majority to convict the president. That is extremely unlikely, I think, at the moment. Unless something comes out that's even more damaging than what we know already, it's just really hard to see 20-odd
1: Republicans voting against a sitting Republican president. Now, we were just talking... Two days ago about the, the the likelihood that this would go to impeachment, as you know this question has arisen several times over the course of the administration, and your view then was that it wouldn 't essentially because of political calculus and no other reason that it simply wouldn 't come up. Why do you think what's happened here has has changed that calculus
2: yes you 're right, and things shifted almost overnight, and i 'm afraid i didn 't spot it coming in advance. I apologize to listeners for that but Essentially, for the past year or more, the left flank of the Democratic caucus in the House has been saying to Nancy Pelosi, we must impeach, we must impeach. The majority of the caucus, and particularly those Democrats in more marginal districts, have said, absolutely not, it's going to kill us when we come up for re-election. You know, the folk wisdom in D.C. is a failed impeachment, by which I mean impeachment in the House and not removing the president in the Senate, you know, helps the president and damages the impeachers. And so that was the settled view of Nancy Pelosi and the House leadership. What happened that seems to have changed that is that some of those Democrats in close constituencies came to Pelosi and said, actually, we've changed our minds on this. You know, we think what
1: happened here has crossed a line. We've got a constitutional duty to uphold. And asking as ever that you get your crystal ball out, that kind of realization, that notion of a constitutional duty, the the notion of a a threshold beyond which things become much more a moral question than a political one, you don't think that might happen in the Senate? Well, American politics
2: has been so unpredictable really since 2015, the beginning of the Republican primary, that I've got out of the habit of saying it'll never happen. I think it's unlikely But say there's a small possibility that you might get a decent number of Republicans changing their mind because Republican senators, by and large, care a good deal about national security. They understand what's at stake in Ukraine. They understand that America has a national interest there. And when the aid was frozen by the White House in the first place, I'm told the White House got a lot of calls from angry Republicans saying, what on earth is happening here? You know, what are you doing? So it's possible. I think it's unlikely.
1: John, thank you very much for
2: your time. Thanks, Jason.
0: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights,
1: In 2014, Kathy Jetnil Kijiner performed a poem addressed to her daughter.
0: Dear Mata Beno, I want to tell you about that lagoon, that lazy lounging lagoon, lounging against the sunrise. Men say that one day that lagoon will devour you.
1: She was speaking at the opening of the UN Climate Summit as a representative from the Marshall Islands.
0: No one's drowning, baby. No one's moving. No one's...
1: On most international issues, places like her home country, a sprawl of tiny islands in the Pacific, don't have much influence. But on climate change, their greatest threat, they've become a powerful collective voice. Tomorrow, a whole day of debate at the UN General Assembly will be devoted to small islands' concerns. The small
4: island states are really on the front line of climate change.
1: Daniel Franklin is our diplomatic editor.
4: They're often very low-lying, much of them less than a meter above sea level, so they face, quite frankly, the threat of extinction in some cases and certainly the threat of severe damage to their livelihoods.
1: And how is it that the small island states have come together as a political force? Climate is, is such, a, such a divided subject.
4: Well, it goes back to the early 1990s, and they clearly felt that they were deeply threatened by the emerging realisation of what climate change could do, and they were starting to see it in their own islands. But as individuals, they were very, very small and and rather powerless. Even collectively, they're less than 1% of GDP, and they contribute only a very tiny amount to the actual problem of global warming. They got together in an organisation called AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States, with 39 members, they realized that they could uh, together be quite a powerful lobby for a number of reasons.
1: How do you mean? How were they able to to gain so much power?
4: Well, they've made sure that they have a voice through the United Nations, and often that voice carries a powerful moral message. They're, They're states that are threatened with severe damages and can be, the, if you like, the canary in the coal mine warning the rest of the world about the effects of climate change. But in terms of sheer influence, each member of the United Nations gets essentially to to speak and to vote. And they've used that effectively by coming together, making sure that they create a sort of momentum and a collective lobbying power, often with people running around the floor of these big climate conferences, making sure that their voice
1: gets heard. So how, how has that played out? How have they proven themselves successful as a political force?
4: So, for example, they've managed to get into climate change treaties, concerns that are close to them, such as loss and damage from climate change. For the Paris Agreement, they were absolutely central to the inclusion of the aspiration to 1.5 degrees warming above pre-industrial levels. There was a slogan, 1.5 to stay alive, which proved very effective.
1: And so what is it that they're, they're arguing for now?
4: Well, they put together a package that they've called the SIDS Package, with a whole range of things that they would like to see happen and measures that they'd like to see taken. First of all, they want the, the aspiration to 1.5 and the seriousness of 1.5 degree warming to be absorbed by the big carbon-emitting countries. They want to make it clear that they themselves are keen to set an example of what can be done, for example, going carbon-neutral in a reasonable time frame. The Marshall Islands has led the way for that. They all plan to line up and submit commitments to ambitious carbon-cutting measures, and in particular to renewable energy commitments. And then they want money, and they want more money and more efficiently distributed money for the adaptation to the climate change that's already happened. So they need to invest in things like desalination plants, reinforced harbours to cope with the rise in sea levels. And there's a fear that the money that's coming their way so far as first of all been too little and secondly tied up in red tape it takes too long to come. It can take years, and by that time the needs have moved on. So they'd like to see more and more efficient money coming their way.
1: And what's your reading on on how well they will do? How likely they are to get what it is they're they're aiming for?
4: Sadly, I think they're in a sense going to be often disappointed that the words and the deeds and the needs still have quite a gap from what they would like to see. Happening, And also, that I think their message is, is slightly more struggling to find its mark amid many other people who have come into the whole climate sphere. And it's a good thing from their point of view, obviously, that there are more players and more organisations now speaking out about this. But it means that they're perhaps less the go-to people for comment than they used to be. And a lot of attention this week in, in New York, obviously, uh, to young people, Greta Thunberg in particular... And overall, I think for all their success in having a disproportionate amount of influence compared with their size, the real question is, are they actually winning? Because the threat is still there, the clock is still ticking. And some people at least are starting to think that maybe they need even more radical solutions to try to think of how you can tackle this in future. They might have to think of more radical ways of tackling climate change involving radical scientific solutions such as geoengineering.
1: Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Earlier this month, India attempted to land a robotic spacecraft near the moon's south pole. It was the country's first attempt to land a craft on the moon in one piece. Three. But just seconds before the probe was supposed to land, mission control lost contact. Some Indians were comforted by the fact that the country had nearly pulled off an extraordinarily complex mission on a shoestring budget. Others asked why the budget, and science funding as a whole, was so squeezed in the first place.
3: Well, it spends about 0.6% of its GDP. That's sort of the government budget for all kinds of, of scientific research, including military research
1: and space program and so on. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's South Asia bureau chief based in Delhi.
3: That's about something like a fifth of the spending in other big
1: economies. And how has that budget as a fraction changed over time?
3: It's stayed absolutely flat. This is one thing that Indian scientists are complaining about, that GDP growth has been pretty considerable and India has gotten deeper into an advanced economy with more ambitions to sort of play a bigger role in the world. But the actual proportion of GDP going into
1: scientific research is relatively small. And aside from lunar ambitions, what what is that money spent on?
3: Well, there's a whole range of things. I mean, India does a lot of medical research, for example, into antibiotic resistance, which is a big problem in India, all kinds of research into diseases like tuberculosis, which is another problem here. And, you know, a range of things. I mean, India is constantly publishing across the whole sort of spectrum of science. But I think the problem is that there's been a recent trend in funding that's getting people a little bit disturbed.
1: What's this trend? Where's the money going?
3: Under the current government, the uh, Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP Party, which is a Hindu nationalist party, there, there's, a, there's sort of factions within the party that want to promote ancient Indian science to the disadvantage of modern science. Uh, there's this idea that in ancient India, in the sort of golden age of Hinduism, India was far advanced ahead of the, the rest of the world.
1: And there's a push to kind of prove this in various ways. And, and so what do, what do you mean in, in terms of uh, resurrecting ancient Indian science
3: well there's a, a whole ministry has been created called the ministry of Ayush which I mean, promotes among other things yoga but also Ayurvedic medicine and other traditional kinds of medicine but aside from that particular ministry there's actually an agency that's been created to promote uh, the healing powers of, of various cow products and, you know according to ancient Vedic scriptures these are considered medicinal and now the, the government is actually putting pu- Money into promoting their use uh, as a kind of modern modern medicine and in modern uh, industry. What do the scientists make of this? Well, at least one scientist that I spoke to was was rather upset. I mean, uh, the scientist I spoke to works with one of the major universities that, and didn't want their name uh, used or to be quoted directly. But was was concerned that there was too much pressure from the administration of the university to funnel research into projects to do with cow a cow urine, which is gomutra, or panchagavya, which is a combination of five different things, including cow dung and milk and yogurt and ghee, all mixed up together. And the scientist was told that if they didn't come up with projects that involved research in, in these fields, they wouldn't get funding for sort of their normal research.
1: And if this is the trend, where where do you see it going? Is there going to be an ever higher fraction of the research budget dedicated to this kind of stuff?
3: Well, it's difficult to say. I mean, for political reasons, I think the government likes to promote these things. So I'm afraid that we probably just keep going back and forth with these tensions. I suspect that some money will be thrown at at these kinds of things. But India will still be spending a lot more of its research money on things like lunar exploration and medicines that really do cure things.